morning. Yeah, my name is um, Abe Gaisel, as Pastor Matt said. I know many of you, um, but not all of you. And um, one thing that I've actually enjoyed about being a new missionary with the church and being a new member of the church is just getting to meet a lot of you in your homes or just around the church and just get to know you better. So yeah, Jordan and I are missionary staff with Crew or Camps Crusade for Christ at Penn State. And Pastor Matt told me just to give you kind of an update of, of what that's been like lately for us. Um, so we are still in the kind of process of raising our support and a little while ago past the halfway mark. So we're excited to kind of be on the home stretch um, and hopefully get to campus pretty soon. Also lately, we just a couple weeks ago, were taking some theological courses down in Florida, um, which we weren't complaining about being in Florida in January. But those were really a great time just to learn more about scripture, learn more about our Lord, not only so that we can teach, but also to enrich our own relationship with God. Um, And we were just so thankful to be a part of such a great church and community who um, supports us and is so focused on on preaching the good news all over the world, even if it's um, just down the road at Penn State's campus. So the just going to kind of start with some context. Um, so like Pastor Matt said, we're in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And so just kind of give a little bit of context for our passage. So the passage um, yeah, is Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. I think the context will just kind of help give us a clearer vision for what's going on in Scripture here. Um, and so the book of Titus was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's in the New Testament, but it's after the Gospel. So Jesus has already come to earth lived his perfect life, died on the cross, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven. So we're kind of in the early church, the early church is forming and spreading throughout kind of the Mediterranean area. And so Titus is actually, the book of Titus is actually a letter from Paul, and it's written to a man named Titus, so there's not much surprise there. But what we learn in in chapter 1 of Titus is that Paul is writing to Titus, this man who is in Crete. And Crete was um, this place that was known for its widespread immorality. Paul even mentions in chapter 1 that one of Crete's own prophets said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And he says, this is true. (laughs) So it's it's just a place that's known for its its immorality, even among people who who aren't necessarily Christians. And what Paul does is he instructs Titus to stay in Crete. Um, And he tells him to appoint qualified elders in the church there. Um, these leaders are supposed to be above reproach or well-respected among everyone, even in the face of this, this culture that is very immoral. Um, and the reason for this instruction is that there have been many false teachers throughout the church. There are teachers who are causing division um, among the church, and they're teaching for their own selfish gain. And so Paul is telling Titus, I need you to rebuke these false teachers and appoint men who are above reproach, who are respectable, to lead. And so... Then we get to chapter 2, and this problem of false teachers is already on top of the immoral culture in Crete, and so they're kind of, this is really important that Paul is instructing Titus to do this. And then chapter 2 starts with Paul telling Titus to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then our passage, which is chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, is kind of an explanation of what that sound doctrine is. Um, So you'll notice that the first word of our text is for, um, which is just a transitional word that points back to what was before. It's another way of saying because. And so in other words, Paul is giving these instructions for these different believers on how they should live. Um, There's instructions for all kinds of people from older men, older women, young men, young women, Titus himself, and even slaves. And so he's kind of in a way saying, tell the older men to be self-controlled because of this doctrine, this teaching. Tell the young women to love their husbands and children because of of this teaching. 
And this is pretty typical for Paul in, in his letters. A lot of times he will lay out the doctrine or the teaching, um, but he usually does that first. He'll say, here's the theological idea, and now here's how we should live and respond to that. And we often do the same with our sermons, right? Often when Pastor Matt's up here preaching, it's, you know, here's, here's what Scripture says, here's the theological idea, now here's the application points, here's our response. And, and this sermon's going to be no different. In our passage, though, Paul kind of reverses the order. He says, here's how we should live, here's the ethical implications, and here's why we should live. Um, the order isn't too important for us, but the concept is, is very important. How we live ought to flow out of the gospel itself. The teaching of the gospel itself is what ought to motivate us to live for God. And so at the courses that Jordan and I took a couple of weeks ago, we actually learned this principle, and we were taught off in the analogy of dancing to music, which I found very helpful. Um, so kind of to, to elaborate on this analogy, um, you could imagine the music being the gospel and the dancing being what we do. Um, you could look to someone who's listening to, to music with, with, head buds, with earbuds on or headphones on um, and mimic their dancing, right? You wouldn't hear the music because you'd say, okay, I put my left foot here and then I move over here and do this. And, and externally, it would appear you're doing the same thing, right? You're doing the same dance steps. But you won't, you won't be keeping in the, beat quite with, in the beat of the music quite as well as the person who's actually listening to the music. On top of that, it's a little bit awkward when you're dancing in silence and you'll get exhausted and tired and it'll lose its joy very quickly. You'll get bored and exhausted from this. And so this is why Paul and any other good gospel teacher will always make sure that, the good news, that they teach the good news and not just a to-do list. Make sure you hear the music so that you can dance. Because the point's not just to dance. The point is to dance to the music. And the point's also not just to listen to the music and sit still. It's to listen to the music and let it move you into action. And so as we kind of go into our passage today, I just want to encourage you to listen intently to the music of the gospel that's in the text and let that move you um, to respond and move you to dance. So to start, I'm just going to read the passage through and then we'll kind of go back through verse by verse and, and dive a little more deeply into it. So verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so the first thing that we read is that the grace of God has appeared. Grace has appeared. Um, and the Greek word that's used for appeared here is, is a similar word to what we get the word epiphany from. Um, when, we, when we think of epiphany, we think, oh, a light bulb moment, right? This appearance um, often has kind of a light shining into darkness. And in other instances in the Bible, this word is used often to describe the moon or the stars making an epiphany in the night sky. Um, and actually four times in the New Testament, it's used to refer to the first coming of Christ, the appearance of of Christ, the appearance of grace. Grace has appeared. And so the grace of God this was ascending the death, the resurrection, and the ascension that Jesus has made an epiphany into this dark world. That was the epiphany, was, was the grace of God, was Christ being sent. Another thing we see is that grace has appeared. Um, it's past tense. It's already happened. Christ already came. God manifested his gracious nature, nature this grace of God, by sending his son to die for our sins. 
to pay the penalty that we deserved. And he, he did that for us, who really are no better than the lying, evil, lazy, and gluttonous Cretans apart from Christ. Grace has appeared. Christ came to earth, lived, died, rose from the dead, and ascended. And so grace has appeared, but grace isn't done working. But what does the grace of God accomplish through this? What, what does it accomplish through, through its appearance? We read in verse 11 that the grace has, of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. Grace alone is what saves us. And it saves all of us. It saved the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, Titus, and even the slaves in verses 1 through 10, who those instructions were given to. Grace offers to save all of us without condition. Has it saved you? Because I know it saved a wretch like me. And part of me wishes that we could stay right here and just talk about the appearance of grace and how it saved us. Um, How it saved us from hell and promised us joyful life with our great Father forever and ever. And there's certainly enough to talk about that to fill the time. But the passage continues, and that's actually not all that grace does. As great as saving us is. Verse 12, it also teaches us. It says, it teaches us is how verse 12 begins. And so, grace is not just in the business of saving us, as great as that is, but it is also in the business of transforming us. And that's actually the first teaching point this morning, is that grace accomplishes two things. It offers salvation, and it teaches. It truly is an amazing grace. God's graciousness is so rich and so deep that he not only sent his son to rescue us, but he also sent his spirit to transform us. And so the question now becomes, if grace both saves us and teaches us, what does grace teach us? Verse 12 reads, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When we look closely at that, I think we actually see two lessons that grace teaches us. Lesson one is renounce ungodliness, or in the words of our translation, say no to ungodliness. My first thought when I read this, though, is, well, that's easier said than done, right? It's easier to say, okay, renounce sin, say no to sin, um, than it often is to to actually do it. Um, and, And there's truth to that, but But perhaps that's why we need to be taught. Maybe that's why we need a teacher. Maybe that's why grace needs to teach us this. After all, Jesus Jesus said the sick have no need of a physician. Um, If we had this nailed down, we would not need grace, and we would not need it to teach us. Um, And I can't think of a better teacher than the grace of God, and because I sure need grace to say no to sin. But just because it's difficult, it's not impossible, especially because of the grace of God who sent his son to pay the penalty of my sins, and who sent his Holy Spirit to empower me and empower all of us to defeat sin. A student, if we're thinking of of grace teaching, a student, right, doesn't learn everything the day they enroll in classes. When I enrolled as a student at Penn State, I didn't suddenly know everything, (laughs) and I still don't know everything. I wasn't good enough to get my degree at that point. I hadn't learned yet. But education is an ongoing process. Not one day does the student wake up and know everything, But each day, the student learns something more. Unless Christ returns overnight, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and be without sin and be able to say no to every sin perfectly. But are we learning from grace each day? Are we becoming students of grace? But that's not the only lesson of grace. Grace doesn't simply say, stop it, say no to sin. Lesson one is renounce ungodliness, but lesson two is embrace godliness. 
verse 12 again. It says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live godly lives. We're not simply taught to leave our sin behind, but to leave our sin behind and walk in a new direction. Right? Pastor Matt often talks about repenting, how it's a turning from sin in a new direction. And, it, and that's what grace teaches us to do. Paul actually refers to this idea in other ways, too. I mean, just one example is in Ephesians when we read about um, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Right? Putting off the old self is renouncing ungodliness, putting off our old sinful identity. And putting on the new self is embracing godliness. It's embracing our new self, our new identity in Christ and living that out. And so the two lessons are, are the second teaching point. And so grace teaches two things. Renounce ungodliness and embrace godliness. So we talked about how the grace of God teaches us to leave our sin behind and walk in a new direction, a new life of righteousness. But where are we walking to? What's the end goal? What, what, what is our trajectory set to? Where do we set our sights as we turn? In verse 13, grace teaches us these things while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is teaching us to live a new life while we wait for our most blessed hope, the greatest anticipation, the appearing of the glory of Christ. Grace has appeared, as we read in verse 11, but here we see that glory will appear. And that's the third um, and final teaching point this morning, is that grace has appeared and glory will appear. Remember when we talked about the epiphany or the appearance of the grace of God, and we, we see it here, that same idea here again, the, that glory will appear, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mentioned that this particular Greek word appears four times in the New Testament to refer to Christ's first coming, his incarnation. But actually six times it refers to his second coming, the glorious return of Christ. And we notice what verse 14 says about this Christ. He says, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you see the two lessons of grace there again? We have renounced ungodliness, and Christ redeemed us from all wickedness. That's the reason why we are called to renounce ungodliness, is because Christ has redeemed us from wickedness. And our second lesson was embrace godliness. And we do that because Christ purify, is purifying for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Because Christ is working to purify us, we ought to embrace godliness. Christ graciously gave himself for the precise reason that we would learn the lessons of grace and be a people who reflect him and make him known to the world. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was God's own people through whom God would reveal himself to the rest of the world. So too now in Christ are we God's own people who he has redeemed and he's purifying to make him known to all the world. Christ will return in glory and when he returns, we will see the completion and the perfection of the Spirit's purifying work in us. In a way, it'll be the graduation day of these lessons of grace that we're learning. But it'll be even better than the graduation day. In fact, the return of Christ in, in the end times, and the Bible prefers to refer to it as a wedding day. 
And as someone who's both graduated and been married in the last year, I can tell you the wedding day is better. Um, And so we really have a great celebration to look forward to. We have a wonderful celebration ahead of us. Are you eagerly anticipating when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will return in an epiphany of glory? I know that's something that I, I could really do more, is to look forward to what is to come. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, so not grace appearing, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Grace has appeared, and glory will appear. And so now as we kind of wrap up that and get into the application, the dance steps, um, our response to God's word, I could quite quickly present two application points and say renounce ungodliness and embrace godliness. There you go, that's it. But I want to make sure that we remember that these are lessons of grace. In learning these dance steps, I want to make sure that we don't block out the music of the gospel. And so our first application point is this. Listen to grace. Renounce ungodliness. Renounce ungodliness by listening to grace and paying attention. Is because this grace has appeared that we, that we are learning to say no to ungodliness. Our sins were nailed to the cross to over 2,000 years ago, and so in Christ we're now dead to sin. There's been a sin that's reared its ugly head in my life recently over the last several months, um, and that's selfishness. I used to think, oh, I'm, I'm a pretty selfless person. But I think God has really used the wonderful blessing of marriage and of my wife, Jordan, to, to convict me of this. Sometimes I'll be sitting around the house, I'll be reading a book or an article online, and and Jordan will say, hey, could you do this this over here? Could you fix this? Could you put this away? Um, And my response is, I get angry. I say, what? I'm reading. This is my time. I'll do it later when it's convenient for me. How dare you interrupt my me time to ask me to do something for you? I told you it was ugly. (laughs) But grace teaches me to say no to selfishness. I made a vow at our wedding not too long ago to give, not to give Jordan some of my time, but to give her my very self. And why did I do that? I did it because in Ephesians 5 it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Grace teaches me. Grace even modeled for me what it looks like to live a completely selfless life. Christ died the most selfless death on a cross so that he could teach me this lesson. What is it for you that grace is teaching you to say no to? Perhaps it's also selfishness. Maybe it's gentleness, being gentle in how you respond to others or or deal with conflict. Maybe it's patience with others. Perhaps it's even anger. Are you quick to get angry with your kids or your parents or your coworkers? How can you listen to the gracious message of the gospel to teach you to say no to a quick temper. As someone who's in college ministry, there are certain sins that I seem to encounter often on my college campus. Um, and there's one in particular that manifests itself different ways that's particularly widespread. I think widespread in our culture as a whole, um, and that is addiction. It could be everything from Netflix and social media to alcoholism and even pornography. Um, I've seen many freed from the grips of addiction, myself included. 
during my time as a student at Penn State. But I will say this. I saw not a single person freed from anything other than grace, freed by anything other than grace. Whenever anyone struggled for this freedom, motivated by self-image or self-righteousness or self-accomplishment, they were met with certain failure. Those who I have learned to truly say no to pornography or alcoholism or any other addiction were not focused on self-anything. They were focused on the cross. They were students of grace. They said, Lord, I see what you've done for me. I have seen the appearance of your grace. I've seen what you've done for me, and so I want to live for you and not myself. Maybe you need to say that today. The second application point to the first one was listen to grace. The second one is look forward to glory. Embrace godliness. So we embrace godliness and we look as we look forward to glory. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott wrote that the best way to live now is to do spiritually what's impossible physically, namely to look in opposite directions at the same time. In other words, the best way to live now in this present age, as the passage words it, is to, look, is to both look back and remember the appearance of grace in Christ on the cross and to look forward to the anticipation of the appearance of his glory in the days to come. One day Christ will return in glory, and he will perfect his sanctifying work in all of us. I will one day be completely selfless. That's the trajectory I am on. In the song we sang, I believe it was last week, we sang, I am bound for the glory land. We are bound for the glory land. And so now, in this present age, while I wait for that day, I want to move towards it with grace as my teacher and guide. I want to move towards that end goal. One day, all of us who who trust in Christ will fully and perfectly embrace godliness. We will be without sin. We will be perfectly eager to do what is good. We will be patient with others. We will love one another. We will be freed from all addiction and perfectly give our full allegiance to God alone. This is where we are headed, and so let's strive for that now, learning from grace. Are you ready for that day? Grace has appeared, and glory will appear. We are between grace and glory right now, today in this present age, and the best way to live now in this present age of in-between is to faithfully learn from grace and hopefully look forward to glory. Grace has appeared, and glory will appear. Do you hear that?